This morning we are going to continue in our study of 1 Samuel. And so if you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 11. If you do not have a Bible, hopefully underneath the seat in front of you, we refer to those as our pew Bibles. You can find this passage in that pew Bible on page 233, 1 Samuel chapter 11. Before we read the passage, just by way of reminder of where we were in chapter 10. So at this point, the people of Israel now know that Saul is to be king. They respond, long live the king, as Samuel gathered the people in Mizpah. And then afterwards, though, Samuel sends everyone home. So there's kind of a a delay before he's actually set in place as king. And so we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 11, so please follow along as I read God's word. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the people of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people. And all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces. And sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today 
the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Hear the word of the Lord. We find ourselves again in a very interesting chapter of God's Word, shorter than some that have come before, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to work through all the details and see, most importantly, what is highlighted in this passage. Salvation is mentioned multiple times, and Saul is able to clearly let the people know the Lord has worked salvation. Now, we are introduced to a new threat to Israel. We have heard thus far, as we've been working through 1 Samuel, that the Philistines are definitely a threat. But now we're introduced to the Ammonites. So you've got the Philistines to the west, the Ammonites to the east. And I want us to just really understand this. This was not just an empty threat given by Nahash, the Ammonite. I would submit to you with some outside information gathered that this was a, a, a real terror that was backed up by this evil man of the Ammonites. And so it's there, there's an interesting textual matter here. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a portion found at the beginning of this chapter that was uncovered, discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and actually kind of verified by Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian. And so the, the part that's not in our, our English Bibles gives a little bit more of a description of Nahash. So it says this, and, and Josephus supports these, these facts. Nahash, the Ammonite king, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites, Reubenites grievously, gouging out their right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. So Nahash had conquered regions already doing this very thing. And it's actually mentioned that 7,000 had escaped and fled to Jabesh-Gilead, where this threat finds itself in our passage this morning. So we, we read and hear this, this threat of gouging out the right eye, and it seems historically, that he was backing up his words. So this was a, a real terror on the brink of Israel's land. And just to think for a moment of why this was such a big deal and such a disgrace and humiliation, the gouging out of the right eye. So Josephus, this historian, also helps us understand that this was um, so important in the way people battled in those days. So the way in which the description at least is given is that uh, soldiers would hold up the shield with their left arm and interlock their shields where their left eye is covered, but they need their right eye to see their enemy. Others would say, if you have ever shot a bow, an arrow, you need your right eye. This, this was to not only humiliate, but actually to totally... Um, put them in a place where, where they're not able to actually battle, but 
still able to be effective slaves. And so this gouging out of the right eye was, was a big deal. This was him sh- despising the nation of Israel and a token of humiliation to all that experienced this terror. It's almost a depressing response by the elders in this region who, in verse 3, are led to just plead for seven days respite where they could go and try to find help. And it's interesting that he, this evil man, grants their, their request. And really, that would only let us or would indicate to us that he had bigger plans on the horizon. Go ahead and, and share this with all of Israel because my plan is to wreak havoc amongst all of your people, not just this one little spot in uh, Jabesh Gilead. And so he grants their request. They have seven days to figure out what they're going to do. If they can't find out what to do, if they don't have a savior, they will then just give themselves over to to Nahash. So that, that's the scene in which we find ourselves at the beginning of this chapter. It's a pretty bleak picture given of the people of Israel in this point, at this point. What I also want us to think about as we work through this chapter is to, to not just let names and locations slip by and think, okay, this is just a description of where this all went down, but to understand that locations matter. And so, What transpires in this chapter actually invokes thoughts and memories for the people, and we can relate with this. There are locations that we know about or have been to that when we hear people mention it or something happens there, it invokes thoughts or memories. So I can almost guarantee none of us were around during the Alamo, but when that place is mentioned and you've studied Texas history there are memories, thoughts that are invoked. Maybe for some, when Pearl Harbor is mentioned, there are thoughts and memories invoked from what transpired at that location. Or for others, more recently, the World Trade Center in New York City. When we hear of that location, thoughts and memories are invoked. Well, what happens and where things happen in this chapter really actually matters. So we want to we keep our finger on the map as we're working through this chapter because knowing the background of some of these locations actually sheds a lot of light on what, what happens in our chapter. So to begin, in these first few verses, first four verses, we're introduced to Gibeah, where Saul is from, and Jabesh Gilead. Now, I want you to just follow with me just for a moment because I I want to do a little bit of background on these two places and why they're connected. Why were the people in in, uh, Gibeah weeping and mourning when they heard about what was about to happen at Jabesh Gilead? So please grant me just a few minutes here because I think this is important. Saul's hometown is Gibeah. It's in the land of Benjamin. This is important. What has happened in the past in this particular town matters. Okay, so if you have ever done your one-year reading plan and worked through Judges, towards the end of Judges, something horrific happens. I believe it's in chapters 19, 20, and even into 21. If you remember, there was a Levite who had a concubine. 
His concubine was unfaithful to him, and so he went after her to bring her back. So he goes after her, he gets her, he brings her back. I'm shortening the story. He, on his way back, will only stop in a town that is part of Israel. And so he stops in Gibeah on his way back home. If you remember, there's no place for them to stay, so they're going to just camp out in the city, but an old man comes and invites them to his home. So they make their way to his home, and in the city of Gibeah, there are, we've heard a lot about worthless men. There were some worthless men who did wicked things to his concubine that very night, and she ended up dead the next day. This happened in Gibeah. Now, this Levite, this is where it gets a little crazy. He took her, and he ended up sending pieces of her to the 12 tribes of Israel. 12, cutting, sending, and calling on Israel to step up and respond to, to this wickedness. And this was a warning to them saying, this, if you do not take care of it, will eventually happen in your town. And so we hear from that story, the people of Israel gather, they come together, and they almost completely annihilate the Benjaminites, leaving but just a remnant. Now, there is, there is some um, grieving that's happening. There is compassion for the remnant that's left in Benjamin, not wanting one of the tribes of Israel to be completely decimated off of the face of the earth. And so... This is where Jabesh Gilead comes into the picture. When everybody was rallied together, unfortunately, no one from Jabesh Gilead came out to actually put a stop to this wickedness. And so, when the people are thinking about this, we read in Judges chapter 21, just hear this, so the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there to Jabesh Gilead and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every, ma- every male and every woman that is, that is lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So these 400 virgins were the ones who actually came together with, um, so this was Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead, almost like a forced marriage that happened this, these few generations before that actually made a, 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 a big blend and connection with families between these two locations. So you have these two locations. I hope that that was helpful in, in shedding a little light, but as we move into seeing how Saul responds in cutting up his oxen, there are some parallels happening here. It is a warning going out to the people of Israel. So we're going to get there. So there's a connection between Jabesh Gilead and Gibeah. Why were the people mourning so much? Because they're so closely tied relationally. So we have Saul coming in from the field behind the oxen. Once he hears about this, he is the one that actually he actually responds. But what's so important for us to see is verse 6. Why did he respond? The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, 
and his anger was greatly kindled. Just a moment here about his anger. This comes on the cusp of the the Spirit of God rushing upon him. And so for anyone who thinks that anger generally always is necessarily a sin, this would be one of those passages that we have to, we have to deal with because the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he was angry. It was greatly kindled in him. And so we do hear in Scripture, for example, from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. James writes in James chapter 1, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we we have two categories here. We have anger that is the work of the flesh, a carnal anger anger that that is not righteous and that is not good and pleasing to God. But we also have in Scripture a righteous anger. We even see this in the Lord Jesus Jesus was angry, we are told in Mark chapter 3, at the Pharisees when they threw such a fit about the man with the withered hand being healed on the Sabbath. If you remember, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. I I don't want us to miss this. This anger happens when something that is wrong needs to be put right. Something that is out of joint, something that is not right, needs to be made right. The man with the withered hand, Jesus is angry that the Pharisees would not want this this man made in the image of God to experience healing, all because of their rules and regulations. And Jesus is rightly angered because something that is wrong is put right. With Saul, we see that the evil of Nahash, the Ammonite, needs to be put right. And so it is a righteous anger that is kindled inside this man whom the Spirit of God has rushed upon. One commentator, John Woodhouse, writes, This was God-inspired rage. The anger inspired in Saul by the Spirit of God was obviously directed at the threat posed to the people of Jabesh-Gilead by Nahash the Ammonite. This righteous anger reflects God's own wrath against evil, which, uh, for which sake the Lord has given the sword of civil officials. God has made a way for evil like Nahash to be taken care of. So that we don't get confused that we are all to pick up the sword when we're angry at injustice and go and take care of it ourselves, we see from Scripture that God has given this fear of sovereignty to governments to actually take what is wrong and make it right according to God's law. So what did Saul do? I've already hinted at this, but we see that he took a yoke of oxen cut them into pieces and set them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Now, again, lest we think that this is a threat, I don't think that this is Saul threatening the people of Israel, rather showing them a warning that this horrific thing that is about to take place at Jabesh Gilead, 
the right eye being gouged out, and this horrible evil coming upon them, let this be a warning. This is coming to your city, your town, and your family if you do not act. So it is a call to arms for the people. The Ammonites were a great threat to all of Israel, so they must step up. And I think it's also really important. We're seeing some good highlights of his kingly rule in this chapter. Just in, in noting what he says, uh, I believe in, in verse 7, he doesn't say, whoever does not come out after Saul, because I'm your king, he says, who does not come out after Saul and Samuel. At this point, Saul still has his priorities straight. He has the, 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 the ranks right, that, that he is anointed by God to walk out what God has ordained. And so Samuel, being the prophet of God, he is, in a sense, saying, it's not just me, the king, who's calling you to arms, but this is from God. You must step up. And then in verse 10, therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow, and we can only assume that they're now responding to this seven-day respite that Nahash had given them, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And just in the translation and studying this, there seems to be some ambiguity. This is the statement that's being communicated, we will come out tomorrow, but it's not exactly clear, does this mean that we will come out tomorrow and battle you? Or what it seems to imply is uh, some kind of trickery here. We will come out tomorrow and give ourselves to you, and you may do to us whatever you wish. That's going to happen tomorrow, so we will, we've, we've, we've sought a Savior, not able to find it, so we're now giving ourselves over to you to do to us as you wish. And knowing all along that Saul has let them know that by the time the sun rises tomorrow, there will be salvation. And so in verse 11, the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. Again, he's, he's, following, he's following in line with, with a right rule because this is exactly what Gideon does in Judges chapter 7. He divides the soldiers into three companies when they defeat the Midianites. Saul is taking that battle plan of a, a proven servant of God. He breaks the company into three, and they come into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites into the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, and this detail helps us understand this great defeat so that no two of them were left together. You cannot scatter more than this. This is, the, this is the, the army of the Ammonites being decimated and scattered. No one was together after the Lord saved his people. And then in the last few verses of this chapter, we see that the kingdom is renewed. What we see in verse 12 is actually the worthless men of chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, being brought back into the story. If you recall at the end of chapter 10, these worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but Saul held his peace. Well, the people, after experiencing Saul with the Spirit of God upon him, leading them to victory, they want to make what seems wrong, right. 
So they say, who were those men who said this thing? Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them here that we may put them to death. And again, in this chapter, we see another kingly act done by Saul. First, there was the military mustering and leading the troops into battle. And then we see the mercy shown to these worthless men. So we see valiance and mercy given as he's now leading the people. In all of this, Saul gets it, at least in this moment, recognizing who should get the glory. In verse 13, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So the bad-mouthing, how will this fellow save us? Well, chapter 11 actually gives the answer to that question. How will this fellow save us? And we see in verse 6, it is by the power of God's Spirit. That is the only way that this man would save the people. And so the hero, may we not ever forget this, the hero is not Saul. Please don't miss, please don't miss this. The hero is the Lord Almighty who saved his people on this day. So in 1 Samuel chapter 11, this is also God's grace upon grace. Remember, I spent a moment explaining the, the place of Gibeah, where once it was a stench upon the people of Israel, what happened in Judges. The place of wickedness and destruction has now become a source of salvation and deliverance. God used a man raising him up from that exact town where such wickedness had occurred and brought light out of darkness, raised up a man to lead the people to deliverance. All glory to God in bringing light out of darkness. And really, again, this is the difference that the Spirit of God makes, where something that is, should be just, in most people's eyes, never acknowledged again, completely other than us because of what has transpired, God takes what is broken and he's able to breathe life into it and actually make it a place where people are like, yes, Gibeah, that's where God raised up that young Saul and delivered us by his hand that day against the Ammonites. Another commentator, uh, Dale Ralph Davis says this, salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had the Spirit of God upon him. The people thought, man, if we just have a king like all the nations, then all's going to go well. And God used Samuel to say, bless your little hearts. I'm going to have mercy upon you. You're actually going to get a king, but it's, he's not going to function like the kings of the nation. Samuel gives them the rights and duties of what the king shall live by. And then... He shows them that when the Spirit of God rushes upon this anointed king, God will deliver. So when hard times hit or disasters come upon us, most of us, if not all of us, will instinctively cry out 
to a Savior. The question is this morning, who do you cry out to or what do you cry out to? In the face of threats and danger, please hear me. Our hope for success lies ultimately with the Lord. Really, this is the Old Testament equivalent of John 15.5, where in that verse, for believers, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And hear this last part, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't that the same story that we're, the same truth that we're hearing in our story this morning? Apart from God, we can do nothing. If the Spirit of God had not rushed upon Saul, there would not be this salvation this day. In our own lives, we need to be reminded of this daily. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We are created to be dependent beings upon the Lord. That is actually a good thing. Please hear this. This this is before the fall, before everything went wrong. God created you and me to be dependent beings, to need a God who would care for us, provide for us, and we would listen and obey. That relationship vertically actually brings the most glory to God and good for us when we recognize that our dependence is a glorious gift from God because we're running to the one who gives all things that we need. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above. He is the one who provides for his own, and that is the best place for us to be. What we see next is a renewed allegiance to the rule of God. Again, the location matters. Samuel summons the people to Gilgal. It's a weird word, Gilgal. But it's important. I want you to hear this. Please don't miss this. He summons them to this location to renew the kingdom. Now, it's obvious that what's happening here is the public confirmation of Saul as king, being made king there, but there's so much more happening. It also seems that Samuel is is trying to help the people understand that they are to renew their faithfulness to God's sovereign rule over their lives. Saul, with the spirit rushing upon him, reminds the people that that salvation that we experienced today, it came from the Lord and the Lord alone. And then Samuel is helping the people. Remember what you've done to this point. You, by God's own word, you have rejected him as your king by desiring a king like all the nations. Please understand that this very day you were delivered by the hand of the living God. We want to renew our faithfulness to him or renew our allegiance to him. And so in Gilgal, we are reminded from God's word, this is where Joshua had brought Israel after the crossing over the Jordan River. If you remember, and we'll read this in just a moment, they set up 12 memorial stones to be reminded of God's faithfulness, all that God had done and renewing the nation's covenant with the Lord right there at Gilgal. Samuel's purpose was to tie what God has done in the past to what they experience today and remember your allegiance to the one true God, the one who has acted faithfully 
in the past continues to act faithfully now and will continue to be the one true faithful God. And victory and blessing comes only through faith in this Lord. So hearing from that passage, I want to read it because what Joshua reminds the people of is what we need to hear. So the people came out, and this is Joshua chapter 4, verse 19. The people came out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. Isn't God amazing? For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried it up for all of Israel to pass over, so that all the peoples of the earth, listen, may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Don't forget who your allegiance lies with. Don't forget the one true God who is so very faithful. And again, this is so relevant to us. I think Christians really need to, even even this very day, be faced with this demand that Samuel places upon Israel in our story. Again and again, we are to renew our allegiance to the kingdom. So we have the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 say, in verse 33 say, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You hear that verse, and if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you hear what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. And all of us, as we read through chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, should, as we're reading through, realize that we all fall short of meeting the mark of covenant faithfulness in the kingdom of God. Christ is laying out, this is what it looks like to be part of my kingdom. And then you hear the words, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we all have to ask ourselves, this last week, have, has our life been defined and marked by seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And if you're like me, you quickly have to raise your hand and say, I have fallen short. And Samuel, as he's bringing the people to Gilgal, is the same thing as we hear God's word today being brought together to renew our covenant commitment or allegiance to God's kingdom. This is God's grace and mercy, even if you have completely ruined it this last week. Now, today, his mercies are new every morning, and he's saying, remember where life and life abundance lies, where blessing upon blessing lies in my kingdom, and renew once again your your allegiance to me as your king, as your Lord. And I pray that our response would be to repent of our sins. That is the mark of a Christian. Continual repenting and running back to Calvary's cross, running back to the King of Kings, and again, remembering that our allegiance lies to Him. And as a people, we are renewing our allegiance. That is a good thing when we gather corporately on the Lord's Day and we sing songs of praise to the King of Kings. It's an opportunity for us to renew 
our allegiance to the king. When we participate in the Lord's Supper or watch a baptism, the two ordinances given to the church, weekly we are remembering what Christ has accomplished for sinners like us and who has brought us into his family. And remember that he is the one that holds us in his hands. And if we have somehow missed the mark and have fallen into the deceitfulness of sin, we have an opportunity this very day to renew our allegiance to the king. The people as they gather are reminded, led by God through Samuel at Gilgal to renew their allegiance to the king. I want to read Jeremiah chapter 9, just a few verses, and hear about this good God whom we are called to fear and to love. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in wisdom, in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his strength, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So I want to remind us of where we've been this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 11. How does Saul lead Israel to victory? The Spirit of God rushed upon him. God gets all the glory. And I also want to remind us that when the Spirit rushed upon him and he called the people to rally with him, the fear of the Lord fell on all the people. So the Spirit of God rushed upon the one who was anointed as king, and the fear of the Lord fell on all of the people, and then God delivered them. God brought salvation to his people this very day. I mentioned early on that not only are locations important, but also names. So it took a little digging, but Nahash, that wicked Ammonite, his name actually means serpent. And it makes you think, man, those Ammonites, the moms and dads going, I want to name my child serpent. It kind of shows you that they weren't the best of people. But we hear this name serpent, and if you're thinking about God's redemptive plan of history, and when, when Saul is actually placed as king officially in this chapter, comes after the defeat of the serpent. So before Saul can receive the kingdom, he must defeat the serpent. I hope you're starting to kind of connect the dots. How does this passage lead us to Christ so what Saul did as king in defeating the serpent is what Adam in the garden could not do. And then we hear that there will be the serpent crusher to come, God's promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, where Adam failed, the second Adam would not fail. And we see as God's redemptive plan unfold that Christ receives the glorious crown by accomplish, accomplishing redemption for his own, defeating death, conquering sin on behalf of his people, defeating the serpent. And so it's just but a foreshadow here, but pointing to the ultimate king who does crush the head of the serpent ultimately. 
It points to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we are, are reminded of your great deliverance of your people and the great joy of Israel's sons when in your plan of redemption, first when Egypt died upon the shore, then in our story today when Nahash and the Ammonites were defeated, but far greater joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Father, we rejoice in your word, all that was packed into this chapter and ultimately to be pointed to your son. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing night. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forevermore. When we hear from King Saul that it was the Lord that delivered his people this day, may we be reminded of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, sinners who deserve death because of our sin. Christ made a way by laying down his life for the sheep, becoming our substitute, dying the death that we deserve to die. Father, we rejoice in the King of kings, and may this be a day for your people to renew our allegiance to your kingdom Father, we are so thankful that if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us. And as we live this Christian life, may we be a people who are quick to seek forgiveness, repent of our sins, and run once again to where your mercy flows, the cross of Calvary. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.